This is a special bonus episode of Gift Biz Unwrapped. We're talking about your employment rights and obligations. What you need to know now about the CARES Act, and guess what? It's all in plain English. This is a definable problem. We know what the issue is. Whether it's going to be three weeks or six weeks or eight weeks, right, that's an open question. But we know the enemy and we know how to get through it. It's just sort of an open question of how long at this point. Attention, gifters, bakers, crafters, and makers. Pursuing your dream can be fun. Whether you have an established business or are looking to start one now, you are in the right place. This is Gift Biz Unwrapped, helping you turn your skill into a flourishing business. Join us for an episode packed full of invaluable guidance, resources, and the support you need to grow your gift biz. Here is your host, Gift Biz Gal, Sue Monheit. Hey, Gift Biz listeners, I have a really special treat for you today. Yes, it has to do with the coronavirus, and I know we are all getting tired of hearing so much about this topic. We're hearing about how to stay healthy at home. We're hearing how to best work at home. All the things, right, about the virus. But this episode is a little bit different, and I felt it was really important because it's answering some questions that aren't being discussed as much, except if you're already part of maybe your local chamber, you're tapped into your small business bureau in your community, etc. But not all of us are or have access to the information, and we're just reading all the documentation, right? We're not having a chance to always ask the questions. But today we are, I'm going to be your voice asking all the questions, and we are going to get clarity on issues I think we all need a little more certainty about. We have on Brad DeBobian of Shoemaker, Loop, and Kendrick, which is a law firm in Tampa, Florida. You're lucky, Brad, because (laughs) you get to be in the warm area. Some of us are still in the cold wishing for warm weather where we could just get out and take a breath of fresh air. But we are going to talk all things law from the employment standpoint. And Brad, welcome to the Gift Biz Unwrapped podcast. Thanks so much, Sue. It's great to be here. I am thrilled that you reached out and offered to come on the show through a connection I have of mine in your firm. So thank you once again for being here. And first, before we get started, share with us a little bit more about who you are. Sure. So I'm a native Floridian. I studied philosophy in college and taught school for a few years before making my way to law school and then began my legal career at Shoemaker in Tampa, which is where I uh, have been the last 12 years. And I was originally a bankruptcy lawyer. Um, I graduated into the Great Recession. So I graduated in 08. So it was a great time to sort of learn those bankruptcy chops. And I did that for about five years and always did a bit of employment law. And then as the economy improved, kind of in the mid-teens, I uh, pivoted and have focused almost exclusively on employment law for about the last five to six years. So I spend almost all of my time these days advising employers on everything from employment agreement drafting to restrictive covenants to employee handbooks. And we also handle litigation. So when employees bring claims for unpaid wages or overtime or discrimination or any of those things, And then for about the last three weeks, it's been all coronavirus all the time. And we're seeing laws passed every week now, major monumental legislation, and employers need to understand how that affects their business, how that affects employee rights to paid time off, for instance, which was one of the major features of the Family First uh, Coronavirus Response Act. And now we've got the CARES Act, which has a bunch of loan provisions. So it's all coming out as fast and furious, as I know it is for your listeners too, as business owners. And we're doing what we can every day to digest and help our clients understand what they're rights and obligations are in this crazy time. 
Perfect. And you said that scary B word, bankruptcy. And I think a lot of us owning our own businesses, that's the big fear, right? How are we going to hold on? How long is this going to go? And how do we make sure that we don't need to address anything having to do with bankruptcy of our business and obviously clearly our personal finances as well? But I think understanding, trying to be logical and using the tools that are becoming available to us is the key. Do you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. And I think the most recent legislation, the CARES Act, you know, historical in its scope and the dollars associated with it, and it provides a ton of money, most of which can be available on a grant basis. It's a loan, but it's ultimately forgivable if you stay within the confines of it. I really think that it was going to potentially go a long way to helping businesses of all sizes who are able to get lending on that program to avoid bankruptcy and to weather this storm. Because unlike the Great Recession, which you know we didn't know how long it was going to last, or sort of where the bottom was. This is a definable problem. We know what the issue is, whether it's going to be three weeks or six weeks or eight weeks, right? That's an open question, but we know the enemy and we know how to get through it. It's just sort of an open question of how long at this point. So I'm hopeful that with this lifeline and maybe some potential other legislation that we may see, there will be the resources to allow businesses to weather the storm and to come out on the other side. Beautiful. So this is a message of the future. There is a bright light. There is hope. But we need the information. We need the information. There are probably things we need to do to act correctly. And I think that's going to be the scope of our conversation today, finding out what's available and understanding how to take advantage of the things that are being created to help support us. So I thought, Brad, the best way for us to work through this conversation is to talk about it first as a business owner. So we all are small business owners here. Some of us work by ourselves in our business, and others of us have a staff of all different makeups, right? And that's probably also what you see when you're talking with people. So we'll talk first as an employer. Then we'll talk a little bit about if you're also an employee, maybe you're still working your nine to five and you have questions about what's available for you there because you've been laid off, your hours have been reduced, whatever that looks like. And then, of course, I have some random miscellaneous questions for you at the end here too, (laughs) okay? All sounds good, yep. All right, wonderful. So as you and I were talking initially, you brought up the fact that there's a big question between what is the difference between someone being laid off or employees going on furlough. Explain what that difference looks like. Sure. So neither one of those terms, layoff or furlough, have specific defined meanings in Department of Labor regulations, say. But we understand what they mean generally. And a layoff is really a hard break in the employment relationship. It's the same thing as a termination or a firing, although I think the term layoff is generally understood to sort of be softer language around that concept, generally having to do with a situation like the environment we're currently in where, hey, if people are getting fired, it's not because they did anything wrong. It's because of extrinsic circumstances. So, But a layoff, generally speaking, is the same thing as, as a termination or a firing, right? It's a hard break. This person is no longer employed. They no longer get benefits. They get COBRA. If you are a benefits provider, you have to make that available. But generally speaking, this is an end of the employment relationship. A furlough, on the other hand, is where a business is experiencing generally a downturn in its revenues or cash flows, necessitates sort of a scaling back of operating costs. And one of those is on the payroll front. But the business really likes the employee and wants to keep that person around. Maybe it allows them to stay on benefits and caution that whether or not somebody who's furloughed or who's working less than their regular full-time hours can stay on benefits is an issue that the employer needs to look at closely with its benefit plan administrator or a broker or provider because whether or not somebody can stay on benefits if they're furloughed is a function of what the plan terms provide. 
But the furlough concept more generally is just, hey, we want you to remain associated with the business. We don't have any work for you to do right now, or we have dramatically less work than we're used to giving you right now. But as soon as this thing picks back up, we're going to pick right up where we left off and you'll have your job to come back to. It sort of it keeps the employment relationship alive in spirit. And then, you know, you don't have to do all the onboarding stuff if you want to bring the person back on. Right. You're just going to ramp back up and, and put them back on the schedule. So you're kind of in a holding pattern. Exactly. OK. All right. Now, does this uh, the layoff is pretty clear. <laughs> it's a yep, clear cut. It is. The next step for that person is to either be able to collect COBRA, go to the unemployment office, well, file, (laughs) not go there right now, right? Exactly. So that's that. Now, the furlough, which I think a lot of us, because I know we're all very careful about the employees that we have, especially because they're working really close to us, not, I mean, physically, but kind of emotionally, too, with our products. They're making our products with us alongside. And we have smaller offices, just by nature of the community that we have. Does a furlough apply to full-time and part-time employees? Yep. Generally speaking, right, you can furlough a person regardless of their status, depending on the size of your operation. If you have salary-exempt employees, right, so this would probably be on the bigger side of the enterprise. But if you have a staff of people who are salary-exempt, there's some specific considerations regarding what you can do with that person if you're trying to retain their exempt status. But generally speaking, yes, you can furlough anybody irrespective of whether they're full-time or part-time worker. Is this something formal that you do? And let me explain why I say that. So a lot of us have part time workers. We flex them up and we bring them down. We pay them by the hour based on the workload that's coming in, the time of year. Obviously, in our industry, Christmas is huge as the holidays, etc. Is there something formally you should be doing with your part-time workers to tell them you're on furlough? Or I mean, because I think a lot of people just recognize, okay, things aren't going well. We all have to be home by demand. If I can take some work home, I will. If it's something that you have to be at the office to do, then obviously we can't. But I think there's been a lot of just sideline behind the scenes conversations with people saying, okay, you're home. When things are over and we can, we'll be back up to full speed. But nothing really formal in terms of documentation. Yeah, no, essentially what you're doing here is you're just flexing them down, maybe all the way to zero. And there's nothing particularly formal that needs to happen, although it's not a bad idea to communicate whether in a simple writing or just orally the reason why things are going on, not that it's probably going to be any surprise to folks. Mm -hmm. But no, strictly speaking, not anything particularly formal is necessary. The one thing I would point out, and it's a common question I get is, well, look, if I I have a staff of multiple employees, can I flex some people or furlough them all the way to zero, whereas I keep others on part-time or maybe reduce them in a different manner? The answer to that is yes. But you would want to just document the difference, right? So obviously, there's a risk of claims of discrimination that different people are treated differently. And under the law, there are protected classes of individuals, right? We can't discriminate or treat people differently based on their race or national origin or religion or any number of those protected classes. But if the business necessity is just, hey, look, I need the people who do this piece of production to keep working, but I need to ramp down these other group of people because the work that they do is less essential or there's less of it. That's a completely legitimate reason to treat different groups of your employees differently. But you would just want to document the business reason for treating different people differently so that you have a record of that. And unlikely event you ended up with any kind of discrimination claim, you would say, well, no, I wasn't discriminating. Here's the business reason I treated different people differently. Well, and it almost sounds like to be super safe, you treat the positions in certain ways. Like if you're in production and filling orders and there's no orders coming in, then those people right now are on furlough. Exactly. But you might need 
one person to come in because there's an order here or there. I mean, that's what I'm facing here in my shop is I don't want to not send out orders and then have my customers not be able to make money because I didn't provide the product when we really can. We're a very small office. Nobody's coming in here one person at a time, only if we have to, right? Right. So trying to treat the positions similar, I guess would be a way to say it. And then documentation that you're talking about, form of an email or something that's communicated to them and then also just slipped away in a file. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay. Just any kind of even rudimentary documentation that just outlines the reason for the decision making. Okay. So what would you do? And I don't know of anybody in this situation because we're all understanding what's happening. But what if you had an employee who decided I'm not coming in and I'm not working at home because my children are now home and I fully expect to have my job when I come back, even though other people who are working at home are taking on projects or coming in if necessary? Like, what do you do with someone who is feeling that they really have to focus elsewhere, but it does impact you? Are you forced to bring them back in? So a couple of things there. First of all, the question raises the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, which is a federal law that was passed by the Congress and signed by the president into law in mid-March. It becomes effective April 1st. And that provides that for businesses that have fewer than 500 employees, a worker can take paid sick leave for up to two weeks. And if they're a part-time worker, they get their part-time pay. And then there's Family and Medical Leave Act leave available. And I'm guessing most of your listeners have smaller businesses, so they're not historically FMLA covered employers, but this new law applies to all employers that are under 500. There's an exception for businesses smaller than 50 if they can establish that complying with the law would jeopardize the viability of the business. And it may well be that a number of your listeners have that exception applicable to them, but they definitely should be aware that this law applies to all businesses with fewer than 500 employees and affords two weeks of paid sick leave under an emergency paid sick leave act and then potentially an additional 10 weeks the two weeks of paid sick leave is if you meet one of six criteria which and i'm not going to go through all six but generally are if you're sick with coronavirus if you're taking care of an immediate family member who's sick with coronavirus or if you have to stay at home with your children because their school is closed because of coronavirus and then the additional 10 weeks of expanded FMLA leave is also available on a paid leave basis if a person has to stay home. The only reason for that additional 10 weeks is if a person is staying home with children on account of the fact that the kid's school's closed or their other childcare provider is not available because of the coronavirus. So it's a pretty onerous obligation on the one hand for employers. The paid leave is ultimately to be funded by the federal government via tax setoffs or tax credits against certain payroll taxes that the employer would otherwise pay. So you'll recoup the paid leave that you give. And any person who takes leave, either of those bases, their job is protected, meaning that if the job still exists, then yes, you do need to have that job available for them when their leave is concluded. But so that's for people who are taking leave under one of those new federal laws and whose business is not accepted from compliance because it's so small that you know, having to comply would threaten the viability of the business. And the Department of Labor has a question and answer sort of set of, of guidelines that deal with the smaller than 50 potential exemption and what the parameters for that are. But I want to just obviously make the point that there are some protected leaves available to people that employers should be cognizant of. If you're not subject to that, though, and you've got a person who just sort of says, hey, 
hey, I don't want to come to work or I can't deal with work right now. And they're not taking leave under one of those protected laws. And there may be applicable state laws depending on which state employers are in. But generally, a person who just doesn't want to come to work because of a situation, no, they don't enjoy any greater protections than any other employee who just doesn't come to work. And and you can do what you need to do with that person if it's a termination and you replace them with somebody else and there's no job for them to come back to. Okay. And what about, because I know that we have a lot of people who are structured like this as well, is it's a very casual employment situation. Some people, they come in and work when they can. They don't work when they don't. There's not really structure. So there's not necessarily typical hours in the week that someone works, and maybe it's only eight hours. So are there cases where employees are not required to be paying any type of leave in this situation because of the way they're already structured? It's very flexible. People come in, they don't come in, et cetera. Yeah, so there's a methodology for how you calculate what an employee's pay is in terms of what their leave entitlement would be, right? So a person who's only historically working eight hours a week, say, doesn't get full-time pay. They would get pay based on whatever their average weekly pay is. And again, some of the smaller businesses may be exempt from that law altogether. So really need to take a close look. It'll sort of vary on a situation by situation basis, but we need to take a look and maybe even consult with a lawyer in your community about whether the law applies to you or whether you can take advantage of that exemption and how that all the mechanics of it will work. Gotcha. Okay. So I'm looking at a document here that's talking about the CARES Act. Mm -hmm. And it's showing, it's a great document. It says, how do I calculate my average monthly payroll costs. And GiftBiz listeners, I'll put this in the show notes of this episode, a link to it so that you can access it. But virtually it's showing the sum of all included payroll costs, obviously, minus excluded payroll costs. And then it gives the different, what fits in the different categories, what's included and what's excluded. And then you get to Mm -hmm. your payroll costs. Right. Let's see. That was probably pretty obvious. I was seeing what else was in here. Okay. I guess nothing else for now about that. And then the other thing I think that would be helpful for our listeners, too, is who's eligible for this CARES. And what I'm seeing here, and Brad, you can expound upon this, but I think for us, the ones that we were pulled out, and I think you guys will feel really comfortable about this, is if you're a sole proprietor, you're eligible. If you're an independent contractor... So those of you who do services for other businesses, and then we also as employers hire out independent contractors, they're eligible. And any individual who is self-employed who carries on any trade or business. So I think that covers pretty much everybody who would be listening to this who's running a business right now. Sure. So two different aspects of the CARES Act, and I didn't mean to cut you off. No, you didn't. The payroll piece that you mentioned and how you calculate that is relevant in terms of the small business SBA loan that's available to business owners and businesses to sort of fund operations and weather the storm, as it were, of the coronavirus downturn. And it's styled a loan. But ultimately, if you comply with the terms and provisions of the CARES Act, the loan is forgivable in whole or in large part. There's a bunch of parameters, but the amount of lending that is potentially available to you, in other words, the amount you can borrow is a function of your monthly payroll, and you can get two and a half times that number to borrow. And then if you use that money for specific purposes, including making payroll, paying rent or a mortgage, certain utilities, there's a laundry list of things you can use it for. And if you do that within the time period that's prescribed by the law and you don't lay off a certain amount of people or have a more than 25% reduction in salaries, and there's a bunch of guidelines and I can't address all of them here, but generally speaking, if you can do all of those things, 
then that loan is capable of being forgiven, which is to say it will just be funded by the federal government. You would have it forgiven and you wouldn't have to pay it back. Otherwise, the payback timeline is, I think, over a 10-year period with a max interest rate of 4%. So it's a pretty generous loan term anyway. So that's the piece that of the payroll that you mentioned. You were then mentioning all of the different categories of people who are able to take advantage. That has to do mostly with the expanded unemployment insurance benefit, which the CARES Act provides. So typically, unemployment is a function of state law. It's administered by your state. What the CARES Act does is it provides an additional federal supplement on top of whatever the state benefit is. So here in Florida, the weekly benefit for unemployment is pretty low. It's like $275 a week, which it's better than nothing, but it's a relatively meager amount. The new federal benefit on top of that is an additional $600 a week. So now you're talking $875 a week in Florida. That's a meaningful amount of money. And that's available for four months. And whereas generally unemployment benefits were only available to W-2 employees, what you were indicating and reading, Sue, is that these new expanded benefits are available to business owners, to independent contractors, to a broader sort of subset of the workforce to really provide as much benefit as possible to as many people as possible. Perfect. Okay. Great explanation. Thank you for clarifying all of that. So if we're planning on taking out a loan. What is the process that we would work through? So it's an SBA loan, and typically there are SBA-approved lenders, but the new law sort of expands who can be a lender. But my understanding is that it's going to work just like any loan you would take out. In other words, you need to have a relationship or establish a relationship with a lending institution, you know, a bank, and it will be processed and administered through a local bank. And I've got to believe, given the social distancing and all those requirements, that it may well all be accomplishable through online banking as well. I don't know the, the particulars. But yes, generally speaking, it's not something that you're going to go direct to the government for, is my understanding. It's something that will be handled through a lender, and then they will coordinate the loan forgiveness and, and all of those provisions and can also advise on whether your business meets the specific parameters and what you need to do by way of keeping your staff on and all of those obligations. Okay. Perfect. So if you already know your banker, this is a great time to be able to reach out and use that relationship. And if you don't already know your banker, now's a good time to make contact probably and establish the relationship for this situation, but also in the future, because it's always good to know your bankers, your your personal bankers. So we've talked about that before on the show. In fact, Brad, I think we talked about it when Todd was on. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. And if you have your CPA or accountant would also be a person who would probably be a reliable and trustworthy source of direction on this. I mean, again, I think ultimately the loan is going to come through a banker. But if you say, well, I don't really know, I don't have a big lending relationship or I don't have a personal relationship with a banker, but I really want to sort of explore this further. If you work closely with a lawyer, I'd reach out to them. If you work closely with a CPA or an accountant, I'd reach out to them. Everybody's sort of getting up to speed on this and can help point in the right direction. But ultimately, the loan will come through through a financial institution. Okay. One final question as an employer working with employees who are now at home. It's okay, I'm presuming, to give them tasks if they're willing to accept them at home at this point? Yes. Generally speaking, that's right. I mean, there's some parameters under those federal benefits laws that I've mentioned. That A, if you can facilitate working from home and a person can work from home, great, then they don't need to be on leave unless they come back to you and say, well, look, I have small children who are off school and I really just can't get work done. By the same token, if the work that you have is sort of flexible and can be done anytime and that person has to take care of little kids while, say, their spouse is off doing their job, but they can do their work in the evenings or on the weekends when the other spouse is home, then that person wouldn't have a basis to say, hey, I need paid leave for this because the answer would be, well, no, you can just do this on the nights or in the weekends. You can do the work at at sort of alternative times. 
Right. I think the key here is going to be communication. Absolutely. With the smaller teams that most of us have, brick and mortar shops with floor staff, that's a whole different story. But most of us with a tighter knit team, I think everybody understands the scope of the business that's happening, whether it's your direct job or not. So I think it sounds like it's communication and trying to see who can do what as we're working through. I mean, this is not a new forever situation. It's a temporary thing. Absolutely. So whatever we can do to rally together to get through, I think will be helpful. One other question that I thought of while you were talking, though, Brad, is one of the definitions of an independent, like a 1099 person versus an employee who's working with you for you is they're supposed to be using all of your equipment, right? So if you're home, someone might be using their personal computer at home because you usually have a desktop for them at the office, or you're going to put them on projects that they haven't had to use a computer before. Is there any conversation we should have around that or any legal documents that they should be signing if they're going to be putting company information on a personal computer at home? Yeah. So generally, an independent contractor would use their own tools of the trade. So that's a hallmark of an independent contractor. But for anybody, whether an employee or an independent contractor who historically has done work in a company's facility or utilizing company equipment and now is going to have potentially access to, say, a customer list or some other proprietary information, a recipe or a formula that's essential to the business, they're going to be having access to it in their own sort of personal space where they otherwise wouldn't have, certainly a good idea to think about a non-disclosure and confidentiality agreement that basically just says, hey, look, you're going to be having access to confidential information in the course and scope of the work that we're doing for you or that you're doing for me. And you can only use that in connection with that work and you can't share with anybody else and you can't use it for any other purpose. And when I ask for it back, you're going to give it back to me and you're going to destroy any copies. So a pretty standard and straightforward non-disclosure and confidentiality agreement would be a great idea to help address that concern. Perfect. And you know, when I'm coaching, that's one of the things that we always talk about with hiring is even if they're not currently being exposed to anything, you can have an employee who's been working with you for a couple of years and their tasks grow and grow and you kind of forget that maybe now they should have it signed. So my motive operandi is always having people sign it right in the beginning. It yep. sets a tone of professionalism for the business too, especially if you're smaller, because people can think, oh, you know, it's just a smaller business, you know, it's no big deal. But if they're making you sign professional documents, it just sets a different tone, I guess is the way I'd say it. So gift biz listeners, if you guys don't have that in place right now, it would be a great time to do it. Yep, absolutely. Just kind of cleaning up shop, putting that in place for the future as well. Agree 100%. Yay. <laughs> Glad you agree with me. Okay, so now what cautions or suggestions or advice would you be giving to somebody who also has a nine to five job? They're doing their business on the side and we've covered that from an employer perspective. But now on the other side, they're an employee. We've talked a little bit about how we know that unemployment insurance is available during this time and a little bit different given the situation. And that's defined by state, right? Correct. Yeah. Unemployments are handled at the state level. Generally, again, there's an additional federal benefit now of that additional $600 a week. States do have to opt into it. And I can't imagine that there a reason why states wouldn't opt to take that because it's money that's provided by the federal government. I've been surprised before, but, but yeah, you're right. It's handled at the state level and they need to opt into that additional federal benefit. Okay. So there are two places that you could be getting income if you are furloughed, not laid off, furloughed, right? Well, no, no, laid off, you're getting COBRA or unemployment. 
Well, and let, just to be clear on that, many states have unemployment benefit available even for people who are furloughed or have just had their hours cut. So even if you haven't been completely rendered unemployed by being terminated or laid off, in many states, Florida among them, there is a potential benefit available for people whose hours have been considerably cut or whose pay has been considerably cut or have been furloughed, you know, even though technically they're an employee, but if they're not making any money. So yeah, that's something else to be aware of, both as an employer, as you're considering what to do with employees in a lean period, and as an employee, if you go, hey, well, my hours have been cut dramatically, but I'm still technically employed. Does that preclude me from getting unemployment? Well, no, it may not. It depends on what your state's policies are. But yeah, so that benefit is solely administered generally through the state unemployment offices, whether you're unemployed entirely or partially unemployed or furloughed. And then COBRA is just the mechanism by which you, an unemployed a person who was laid off would have access to continued health benefits, although generally it's at the employee's sole cost. Okay. And this is situation specific for the virus, what you were just talking about. That's not a regular thing. No, in most states, the unemployment is available to people who are both completely unemployed and who have just experienced a reduction in their work. I think for the most part, in a more robust economic climate where there are a lot of jobs available, people don't necessarily think first and foremost to seek out that unemployment option. But where you've got a really unique situation here, like where a person goes, well, I'm not working right now, but my employer is telling me that if it was three, six, nine weeks, we're going to be back up and running. I don't really want to go look for a new job but I need a lifeline in the interim, there is the unemployment or partial unemployment option available in a lot of states. Okay, partial unemployment. So it's possible to be getting a reduced check from your current employer and then also unemployment check as well. Yep, within certain parameters and that are specific state to state. But yes, generally speaking, that's correct. Okay. Is there anything else from an employee standpoint they should be knowing about? I think just being aware of all of those options, right? I mean, in in large part, you're at the mercy of your employer and what they can or must do to weather the storm in the short run. So not being shy uh, to take advantage of whatever those benefits are that are now available. And and again, unemployment in Florida was not a huge amount of money before the federal stimulus, but now up to $8.75 a week is a serious addition. So plenty of people I'm sure previously would have thought, hey, I don't need that help. I don't need that handout. But the money is there and it's available. A lot of state systems are overwhelmed and I understand it's taking time to kind of get through the process, but just being aware of that resource and not being shy about asking for the help if you need it. Got it. Okay. And if you are off because you're on maternity leave or paid sick leave or something that had nothing to do with the virus, that plan then stays in place. Yes. Generally speaking, if you you were using your, if you had paid leave through a company paid program or what have you, then yes, you would generally be still utilizing and and entitled to that leave. I think that's correct. Mm -hmm. So no double dipping. (laughs) That's correct. Yeah, exactly. And the extended family and medical leave that I mentioned, which is part of that emergency Families First Coronavirus Response Act, that's up to, well, they call it 12 weeks, but the first two weeks are paid under the companion program of the Paid Sick Leave Act. But that's 12 weeks. That's not in addition to the 12 weeks that are available under regular FMLA. It's a total of 12 weeks for any FMLA reason. This new law just adds an additional basis to take time, which is, hey, I need to take care of a kid at home who's out of school. But if you already used your 12 weeks for some other reason, if you had a child earlier and you had a baby earlier in the year and you took 12 weeks of FMLA, then you don't get an additional 12 weeks in that 12-month period, depending on how your employer calculates. Mm -hmm. And I think I also read somewhere if you, now this is back to the employer side, but I just want to bring it up. If you've already taken out loans for your business, I think I read where you can't go and then take out additional loans now. 
And I know there's some limit on what you can take as a function of how much borrowing you may have already done. I don't know that there's an absolute bar just if you've borrowed anything, but yeah, there is going to be some limitation. I think you're right about that. Okay. Yeah. And it is, I think, business specific too. It's based on what's going on. And you have to actually have been already in business. I think it was February 20th I saw somewhere. So new businesses who are just starting, who maybe had just a couple of weeks under their belt, this isn't going to necessarily apply. But you're also probably not in a position where you're incurring a lot of costs right now yet that income would have been an issue, like selling your products and all. Yep, I think that's right. All right, let's move on. Brad, I told you I'd be very respectful of your time because I know that you have a lot of calls coming in, et cetera. But let's just talk about a couple of miscellaneous, they don't really fit in employer-employee necessarily, but questions that have come up. Does any of this information that we've been talking about look different whether you're a sole proprietor, an LLC, or a corporation? So whatever business structure you've set up, does that matter? I don't think so. Really, the major function or differentiator would be in most economic environments, are we talking about W-2 employees or are we talking about 1099 contractors and the treatment of whether it's this person in their capacity as an employee or an independent contractor or if they're the business owner in terms of how they relate to their employees? But as we talked about, even that distinction has been relaxed, for instance, the availability of unemployment. So I'm really not aware of a lot of distinction between the type of certainly the business structure that was selected and the availability of these benefits, both for the business or for its employees or workers. And what about those of us who might be concerned, like we've really worked hard to get our credit scores really good. We know that that's going to be important personally, yes, and also as a business owner, if in the future we want to expand and get loans for expansion, et cetera. What do we do right now with regard to our credit scores to make sure that they stay healthy for us for the future? I think we're just making sure that we're making debt payments to the extent we're able to, and to that point, taking full advantage of debt relief availability. And I'm not talking about bankruptcy. I'm talking about lenders, credit cards, just everybody seems to be trying to bend over backwards to be accommodative of borrowers and business owners in this environment. I've heard about a number of credit card companies, including, I want to say Chase, that quick phone call. If you say, hey, I own a business and I need interest waived, they're waiving interest, they're waiving late fees. They're not going to reduce principal, but they're doing everything they can to help out. So taking advantage of those types of options, in addition to obviously the federal loan program that I mentioned that's in the CARES Act, and then doing what you can to service those debt payments on time to the extent there's any amounts that you aren't getting waiver or relief from. Right. And again, communicating, first of all, but then not avoiding it and pretending like it doesn't exist, right? But addressing it and showing goodwill, like maybe on your credit card, you're not able to pay the full amount, but you can pay half or for your lease or whatever. But getting in touch with people that you're owing money to and having the conversation. Maybe they'll delay it by a month. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, maybe you could make a plan where you would double when things get better. Can I have three months now and then we'll double it later? And if you've been a long-term customer, I think you're right. Everyone's trying to be as flexible as they can right now because everyone gets it. None of this was any of our faults, (laughs) but everyone has businesses to run. So you just have to kind of figure it out, I guess. I agree. And I will say, like, we have people on net 30, net 40 five in my business. And I have literally thousands of dollars that would have been due to me this month that aren't going to be coming in. But I feel like as a vendor provider, that's what I am to them, my way of managing through that to help them as I can, of course, right, 
But they'll remember that for later, for the future. So when you're talking with everybody, remember, and I'm saying this now to our listeners, of course, it's also the way you handle the conversations, and it can actually strengthen your conversations for the future, even though right now it feels really uncomfortable and being in a tough spot. Yeah, I would just echo that. And I've talked to so many business owners in the last few weeks who are dealing with this difficulty and they want to do the right thing by their employees and by their customers and by their vendors. And the tone that you strike in those conversations and just having the courage to just pick up the phone or send the email and say, hey, here's where we are and here's what I'm trying to accomplish buys a lot of goodwill and potentially goes a long way to helping relieve some of the stress and problems. Mm -hmm. From a logical perspective and not emotional to the extent that you can. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, because it's hard hearing the stories of woe because everybody has some of that right now. Yep, that's right. All right, Brad, I'm leaving the hardest question to last. Are you ready? Okay, yeah, go for it. (laughs) Okay, so given the fact that people who are listening to this show are makers of their product, they're not all consumable products, so they're not all cookies and sauces and spices and something we're digesting. But it's all something that probably in some way comes in touch with our environment somewhere, like pampering products, bath salts, lotions, clothes, maybe even decorative things for our house. So there is the probability that the things that we are selling come in contact with us first and then in contact with someone else. Although we recognize right now and they're saying that it's human to human transaction, What happens, and I know everyone's a little worried about this, is what happens if someone tries to come back to us and say, I now have coronavirus, you are the reason why, because of your products, and then they want to sue us? Right, so... (laughs) (laughs) I told you it was a biggie. (laughs) Unpack the entire American legal system with your question there, right? So (laughs) in America, under our system, anybody can sue anybody for anything at any time. And then the system has a way of flushing out and fleshing out the claims that have merit and the claims that do not have merit. Could a person come up with a theory of liability in which, right, so you gave me coronavirus in and of itself isn't a cause of action, but you were negligent insofar as you had a person who was ill or you knew or should have known was ill working to package your product or to bake your product or whatever it is, and then you shipped it to me and that caused me harm, right? That sort of sounds like something that somebody could formulate into a lawsuit under a negligence theory, which is a cause of action that's recognized in the United States. And now, whether they ultimately can prove that that came was the sort of chain of events that led to them getting sick and then any actual economic damage that they suffered as a result is yet another question and a judge or jury would ultimately flesh that out. So I don't mean to sound any alarm bells, but I wanted to be respectful and answer the question directly. Is there a a way that a person could conceivably make a claim like that? Sure, there is. Do I think it's likely or highly likely? I certainly don't. And your point is a good one, Sue, right? Primarily, this this is person to person transmission. I think we know that the virus lives on surfaces for a pretty limited, there's 24, 36, 72 hours, right? So something that gets shipped out today, it arrives at a customer on today's Tuesday, it gets there on a Friday. The chance that there's even going to be a viable transmission on some surface that the person came into contact with or some product that they had a hand in making, it's pretty remote. And I think the likelihood of claims arising out of that are pretty small. Not to mention, you know, how's that person going to establish that that was the source of their infection when they have ordered any number of other products or gone to the grocery store to buy groceries during that time period? There's just a lot of variables that I think make this particular audience a pretty low risk group for a claim of that sort. 
Yeah, I mean, it's sad to say, but we know that some people try and take advantage of situations. And hopefully, this is so broad. I mean, I was saying to my husband and daughter the other night that this is the first time ever that the whole world is battling the same thing. Every Uh single person worldwide. We're not challenging each other. (laughs) We're all on one side of the issue. So hopefully that won't come up. But virtually what I'm hearing from you, Brad, your message is, could it possibly happen? Yeah, someone might. Is it probable that it would go through the court system even and be won? Probably not, just because of all the intricacies. So don't let that stop you from selling your products. That's the big message. Yeah, absolutely. Keep going out there. Keep sharing with customers how your product can help with the situation. Provide a little bit of happiness. I'm all about candles. When I light a candle at home, it makes me happy. I will buy more (laughs) because that gives me peace during this situation. So figure out how you can sell your product and position it as an aid and a service to the situation as well. Yep, I think that's right. The other thing I guess I would ask, Brad, is I'm also a big advocate no matter what, even if you're a sole proprietor and you're making your product yourself and selling out of your house, look at your personal insurance policy. And then if you're big enough or you should be, you already have a business policy. So there may be some verbiage already in there and you may be more covered than you think you are. Yep. That's a great point that there may well be any claim that was brought, you would potentially have insurance coverage for. And those are both great places to look, whether it's a personal policy, an umbrellas policy, a homeowner's policy, those things cover all sorts of crazy stuff that you don't imagine or a general liability policy that your business may have. Yeah, exactly. Some things to think about. Yeah, things to think about. And one other thing I'm going to bring up as a caution, and then we're going to wrap this all up, and it still has to do on this legal side, is if you in the past always delivered products, and for some reason now, you're going to have let people come and pick something up from your house. First, security-wise, leave it outside if you are even doing it. I'm not an advocate of doing this at all, by the way, but if you were, leave it outside the house. But secondly, if they slip and fall on your property, that's a whole nother issue. So I would really suggest you not even go that route. I think that's right. Yeah. And again, maybe potential insurance available for claims like that, but you do run the risk if you invite people onto your premises to even just something as simple as retrieve something off your front porch. They're an invitee under the law and you run the risk that if they get injured on your property, you may face a claim for their injury. Right. Highly unlikely, but why bother (laughs) is my feeling. That's right. Anyway, all right, can you sum this all up for us? What are you thinking for, let's go with employers, given the situation, working really hard to keep our businesses afloat, adjusting as we can, now knowing more from you about what's available, what advice do you have for us? Yeah, I think this is a time when it pays to just continue to educate yourself about the options that are available. It's such an unprecedented circumstance for everybody. And I'm impressed with what the federal government's tried to do by way of extending lifelines, for lack of a better word, to businesses, to employees. And they recognize the threat to the economy, both nationally and I think globally, if things get too out of hand. So there are a lot of resources available and it's going to be worth your while to just continue to stay up on developments. Those options evolve and there's good things available now and we may see more before this is all over. So nobody wants to see this sort of a cause of major destruction of economic economic value or or businesses or livelihoods. And I think that everybody's trying to do what they can to avoid that. So continue to educate yourself, stay positive one day at a time is what I'm telling myself and just keep at it. Perfect. And give biz listeners, based on what Brad's saying too, again, I'm going to put some of the things that we were referencing in the show notes. So go ahead and look there. 
and let's carry on. Let's do what we can. There's a lot of resources coming in your mailbox. If your inbox is anything like mine, (laughs) there is so much information out there. So ask other people who know, become involved in your communities. Um, Lots of groups are popping up. There's support. Brad, our conversation has given me some clarity on things that I wasn't sure of and kind of a sense of ease that we're all in this trying to help each other. So the information you've shared with us is invaluable. I really appreciate you being here today. Oh, well, it's been my pleasure, Sue. Thanks for having me on and good luck to you and all your listeners. And the same to you. Thanks so much. Hopefully our conversation here today has given you a stronger sense of your options and responsibilities during this unprecedented time. I tried to put myself in your head and cover questions you would be asking if you're sitting around the table with me and Brad. Go check out the show notes page for links to documents mentioned during the show. And I also have another link that you'll really want to see. Our friends over at Flurn, you might recall Aaron, episode 236 from last October, they've compiled a list of resources specifically for the creative community. They've spotted dozens of options popping up to help artists keep their ability to create alive. As more are identified, they're updating the list. So this is something to bookmark and come back to reference periodically. Over here at Gift Biz Unwrapped, I'm also increasing opportunities to connect and share with other handmade creators during this time. In a second, you'll hear about the Facebook group, Gift Biz Breeze. I really hope you come join us there if you're not part of our group already. We're gathering three times a week to talk through various issues we're encountering right now. And I'm also hosting Zoom calls for a more intimate way to connect with the community. These Zoom calls are normally reserved for my coaching groups. But right now, I mostly care about us staying together and you feeling optimistic and supported in following your dream. This is all free. And remember, you do not need to be alone ever, but particularly during this time. Here's a little bit more about Gift Biz Breeze. I want to make sure you're familiar with my free Facebook group called Gift Biz Breeze. It's a place where we all gather and are a community to support each other. I've got a really fun post in there that's my favorite of the week, I have to say, where I invite all of you to share what you're doing, to show pictures of your product, to show what you're working on for the week to get reaction from other people, and just for fun, because we all get to see the wonderful products that everybody in the community is making. My favorite post every single week, without doubt. Wait, what? Aren't you part of the group already? If not, make sure to jump over to Facebook and search for the group Gift Biz Breeze. Don't delay. Come join us in Gift Biz Breeze. Today, 